This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host Ji Sampat. More than 3,000 people, both Israelis and Palestinians, have been killed following a lightning-quick attack by Hamas on southern Israel. The military operation, named Tufan al-Aqsa by Hamas, has brought back into the spotlight the most critical element of sustainable peace in West Asia, which is Israel's continued military occupation of Palestinian territories. Israel has now declared war on Hamas and laid siege to Gaza. It has launched a bombing campaign over Gaza and cut off supplies of all essentials, including water, electricity and food. In the days to come, Palestinian civilian casualties are likely to surpass the civilian casualties caused by Hamas's attack. So why did Hamas, the Palestinian militant organization, launch this attack in the first place? What does this war mean for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's future? And how did Mossad, arguably the world's most capable intelligence agency, fail to detect a full-blown military invasion with 500 trucks crossing the border? We discuss all these questions and more in this episode of In Focus, and we have with us Stanley Johnny, the Hindu's international affairs editor. Stanley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, Ampur. So, Stanley, uh, to take a big picture view of this, anybody, possibly anyone could predict how this entire chain of events was going to end. It is going to end with renewed and extra atrocities and deprivations and tortures of Palestinian civilians. So, what was Hamas, which was governing Gaza, what was Hamas's objective in launching a war? They have no chance of either sustaining or winning. Like, what could they possibly gain from it? Um, yeah, it's right that uh, Hamas also knew that there would be blowback, uh, Israeli retaliation. And given the scale of Hamas's attack, and Israeli retaliation would be much more brutal. And everybody knew this. And it's a good question, why did Hamas still do it? So I think I can only speculate here, uh, but I think Hamas wanted to break the status quo. The status quo was unsustainable for the Palestinians. Israelis thought the status quo was sustainable because if you look at, you just take a step back and look the bigger picture of the last, let's say, from the mid-1990s, ever since Netanyahu came to power after Shimon Peres was defeated in the mid-1990s. The Oslo process has crumbled. And ever since the collapse of the Oslo process, there were some efforts to revive the peace process, for example, the Middle East Quartet Plan, Saudi King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz Plan, etc., etc., but it reached nowhere. So currently, there is no peace process; it is non-existent. And ever since, ever since mid 1990s, Israel has multiplied the settlements in the West Bank, and Gaza. Israel was forced to withdraw from Gaza in 2005. Israel was forced to withdraw because of Hamas's militant resistance after the Second Intifada. And since 2007, Gaza has been under Israeli blockade. So Gaza is under Israeli blockade. Occupation uh, has been deepening in the West Bank. 
And what the Israelis were doing was to continue the occupation and the blockade without facing any consequences. Because you see the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is practically Palestinian non-authority, uh, has been witnessing this uh, what is going on in the West Bank for the last many years, but was unable to do anything. The Palestinian Authority continues its security cooperation with the Israeli government. And within the West Bank, Israel can evict whoever it wanted to evict. And uh, Israel also does this doles out collective punishment, uh, which means even the attackers' houses would be demolished. And so, Stanley, just to, and just, to, just to clarify one thing, I mean, you said Israel withdrew from Gaza Strip in 2005, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then since then, the, Gaza has been under a military blockade. Uh, since, since 2007, Gaza has been under Israeli blockade. Technically speaking, Israeli and Egyptian blockade, because there is one crossing towards the Sinai, Egyptian side. So that is controlled by the Egyptians. But, but, the, but basically... But yeah. the West Bank is not under the same kind of a, a political situation. Is that a, a different scenario there or is it similar? West Bank is directly occupied by the Israelis. So West Bank territories, you see, it has been divided into three, area A, B, C. So the Palestinian Authority, the provisional government of Abu Mazen, is in charge of area A for policing, civil works, um, local administrative work, etc., etc. And area B, that is shared by the Israeli military as well as Abu Mazen's authority. And Area C is totally under the control of the Israelis. Uh, so, but, but at the same time, you look at the West Bank. West Bank has, I think, 540 checkpoints. And the West Bank cities are actually capsuled by the Israeli checkpoints and military presence. So if you want to travel from Ramallah, which is the administrative headquarters of uh, the Palestinian Authority, to Abu Dhis, where you have the Abu Dhis University, where most of the Palestinian students study, you will have to go through multiple Israeli checkpoints. So West Bank is directly under the military occupation of the Israeli government, whereas Gaza has been under the blockade of the Israeli military. So these are this is the difference. So Gaza and may be under a blockade, but this uh, this uh, this high intensity uh, checkpoints are not there within Gaza because it's not there. It's not administered so by Israel. Yes, Gaza is not administered by Israel. Gaza is run by Hamas since 2007. Whereas the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is run by Fatah of Abu Mazen's government. Fatah is a secular nationalist, at least its origins uh, were that of a secular nationalist movement. Fatah is also the party of Yasser Arafat, the late Palestinian national liberation leader. Whereas Hamas is an Islamist militant organization. So Fatah and Hamas fought each other. And Hamas kept Gaza, and Fatah kept the Palestinian Authority. But if you go back to the last election Palestinian territories had, I think it was in 2006, Hamas is the winner. Which is, Hamas was elected to rule over both the West Bank and Gaza, but Hamas was uh, pushed out of the West Bank. Hamas government was dissolved by Abu Mazen. And then Hamas pushed the Fatah out of Gaza, and Hamas was, ever since, since 2007, Hamas has been keeping Gaza and Fatah has been keeping the Palestinian Authority in the occupied West Bank. Right. Sorry, you go on. I interrupted you when you were making Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I, what I was trying to say was that over the last 30 years, the Israeli, Israel, Israelis have come up with a security model, which is to continue the occupation, keep the Palestinians under check through the checkpoints, collective punishment, 
keep Gaza under check through uh, the blockade so that you won't have any direct and large scale security threat coming out of uh, Gaza. Uh, West Bank had occasional eruptions because Palestinians cannot do any organized resistance under the tightening occupation. So Palestinians do knife attacks, sometimes um, you know vehicle attacks, sometimes minor bomb attacks. But every time the Palestinians do that, it would trigger retribution from the Israelis. For example, this year itself, some 200 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank and 30 Israelis. And uh, you saw the Israeli raid of Al-Aqsa Mosque recently. You saw a, a large-scale Israeli raid of Jenin, which is a Palestinian militant stronghold now. So Israel has come up with this method of blockade, occupation, checkpoints, security barriers, etc., uh, etc., et to keep the Palestinians under check so that you can continue the occupation without consequences. This was the policy and this was the status quo. So what Hamas did was to break the status quo. So Hamas actually drilled holes into this security model. So practically telling the Israelis that this is not sustainable. Despite your military might, despite your intelligence capabilities, we are still capable of carrying out large scale attack. And Hamas definitely took a huge risk. And Hamas also, you can see the kind of atrocities they committed against the Israeli citizens that also suggests that Hamas goes back to its original tactics of using terror as a means, because in between Hamas had shown signs of moderation. Now they have gone back to their original uh, tactics. Uh, and this would definitely uh, trigger a much uh, bigger response from the Israelis that we are already witnessing. Right. So how did uh, you know, we read about you know, soldiers, uh, 500 trucks full of Hamas fighters crossing the border into Israel? How could uh, Mossad, which is spoken of as the most capable intelligence agency in the world, how could it fail to detect something like this? Yeah, uh, so there are two things. One is we have this mythical status about Mossad, which is, I think, over-exaggerated. Mossad is like any other human intelligence agency. And Mossad had done blunders and Mossad had made huge mistakes in the past. 1973, this is about Hamas, a militant organization planning a low-tech operation. 1973, Egyptian and Syrian military did coordinated planning. And Israel came to know about the Yom Kippur War only after the war was launched. And in 2006, Hamas was, Mossad was totally caught off guard when Hezbollah infiltrated into Israel and kidnapped their soldiers, which triggered the 2006 war on Lebanon. 2004, Mossad sent his, its men to kill Khalid Mashal in uh, Amman, Syria, and the, 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 the whole plan, plan went, went awry, and they were caught. And King Hussein of uh, Jordan at that time asked Netanyahu to come to Jordan with antidote. If not, we are going to hang uh, your Mossad operatives. And imagine Netanyahu himself traveled to Amman with the antidote to save the life of Mossad's most, Hamas's most important leader, Khalid Mashal, who is still alive in Doha, I think. So Mossad had its own share of blunders and mistakes, etc., etc. So this also, I think, they failed mainly because their focus was either on the West Bank or they were preparing for a different kind of battle, you know, in a sense, rocket attacks, uh, mild incursions. And I've been to Gaza border uh, and I have seen the kind of fortifications they have on the Gaza border. 
And uh, the Israeli military spokesperson told us, visiting journalists, proudly that uh, not just the, the, the wall you see, we have also built underground walls. Uh, and I asked him what could be the uh, you know, um, size of the underground wall. He said that is classified because the main objective of building underground wall is to prevent Hamas's tunnels coming into the Israeli territory. So their focus was on preventing rocket attacks. Their focus was on preventing, you know, small scale incursions and keeping Hamas under check. And especially over the last many, many months, I think they were completely focused on the West Bank because it was West Bank that saw uh, repeated eruptions, the, the small scale repeated eruptions. Whereas from Gaza, what they saw ever since 2007, Gaza, there were four wars ever since Hamas took over Gaza. Uh, Israel had attacked Gaza four times. But Hamas's response has always been firing rockets. So I think the Israeli troops or Mossad were prepared for a different kind of battle. They didn't see this coming. And whereas you see Hamas's, Hamas didn't, they didn't do this with big, big armaments or whatever. What they did, their plan was to basically breach the wall, send their men, hundreds of men into Israel, and then, you know, wreck havoc on the Israelis, including settlers, Israeli troops, etc., etc. So it was a low tech, uh, uh, you know, operation that Hamas had envisaged, and they might have planned it for a long time. So, but I think uh, Israelis were—they didn't expect this to happen. They were focused on a different kind of operation, and they were totally caught off guard, like they did in 1973. Right. So now uh, we know that Hamas has taken uh, hundreds of Israeli civilians back into Gaza, holding them hostage. Uh, do you think uh, that is going to give them any kind of leverage in negotiating with the Israelis for some kind of a ceasefire or uh, anything of the sort? Yeah, uh, we, it's too early to say that because as of now, the Israeli focus is to attack Gaza. You have all kinds of statements coming from Israeli leaders. Netanyahu asked Gazans to leave. Where will they leave? Should they jump into the Mediterranean Sea? You never know. And the only exit point as of now is the exit point towards Egypt. But the Egyptian checkpoint was also bombed yesterday. And uh, um, everything else has been cut off. You know, it has been Gaza has been completely besieged. And there were pictures from Gaza City uh, yesterday where Practically, the buildings were, have been leveled by repeated Israeli bombing. And Israel is also preparing for a ground offensive. Uh, some 300,000 Israeli reservists have, been, have already been mobilized. So, uh, so I think the focus as of now is on um, you know, uh, attacking Gaza, destroying Hamas infrastructure, or attacking whoever Israel wanted to attack. After that, there would be a ground incursion where, and then they can they can directly target Hamas buildings or Hamas military installations or whatever, whatever. So as of now, I think it's too early to talk about negotiations. But if, because Israel also faces this challenge because what Israel is going to do, um, what are your military objectives? Is your military objective uh, to keep Gaza under the occupation for a foreseeable future or are you planning to go into Gaza, attack the targets and come back? If you do the former, which means there would be a war of attrition, Israel should be ready to fight a longer war in Gaza. 
And if you are doing the latter, you may not be destroying Hamas. You go in, you come back, Hamas would be there. And after a few years, attack would repeat, unless you are going to address the Palestinian problem. So Israel also has security challenges ahead of it. So in case, maybe after the first uh, spell of attack, uh, if uh, Israel is forced to hold talks with Hamas, then the status of uh, the hostages might come up. But I think it's too early to talk about talks as of now because Israel has shown no interest in holding talks. And understandably, Israel is also under pressure because uh, what we saw is the biggest security failure or security crisis Israel has seen in many, many decades. Right. Now, looking at Hamas, Stanley, Hamas doesn't seem to have many friends in the world apart from, I think, as far as I know, uh, Iran and Qatar. So, but yet it was able to launch 5,000 rockets uh, from an area which is under a military blockade, as you said. So, how and where did it get hold of all these weapons? Many of them, US-made weapons. There are some reports that some of these weapons may have come from Ukraine and so on. So, like, who's been helping uh, Hamas with weaponry, with funding, uh, with all kinds of logistics? Like, how did they, how, how are they able to do this from a, a very tiny blockaded kind of uh, geography? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, uh, it's 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 actually a mystery. There are different kind of theories. Uh, they may have smuggled in weapons, including Ukrainian weapons, and uh, uh, Iranians might have helped them uh, because Iran has very close ties with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And uh, you know there were some reports saying that Iran was involved in the planning of this attack. We don't know, but unconfirmed reports were there in Wall Street Journal. Uh, so, uh, but it's it's uh, it's uh, Hamas. Otherwise, generally getting support from Iran, which is uh, which has been established, and Hamas gets or Gaza gets funding from Qatar for reconstruction purposes, especially after the Israeli bombing. Uh, Qatar is allowed to send funds to uh, Gaza, which uh, critics say Hamas. So, Stanley, is if I understand for... this right, so uh, Hamas, which is a Sunni Muslim organization. Its biggest supporter is a Shia nation. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Iran, that's true. Because, because of two reasons, primarily. Because one is that support for the Palestinian cause is one of the main foreign policy objectives of Iran. Iran draws legitimacy among the Muslim world through its support for the Palestinian cause. Because Iran says the Gulf Arabs have compromised. They are in bed with the Israelis. So we are the only ones who stand up to Israel. Stand up to the Israelis. We are the only ones who continue to support the Palestinians. That is one thing. Secondly, from a geopolitical point of view, Israel is Iran's number one rival in the region, vice versa, and Israel sees the same thing. And Hamas is fighting the Israelis. So to you know to keep some pressure points on the Israelis, it makes foreign policy sense for the Iranians to continue to support Hamas irrespective of the sectarian divides. So, and Iran has over the years come up with this forward defense doctrine that you don't fight your rival direct, directly face to face. Instead of that, you support the creation of different non-state militia groups that could attack your rival, which includes Hezbollah and which includes Hamas, the Shia mobilization units of Syria and Iraq, etc., etc. So this is an Iranian military strategy. So Hamas fits well into that Iranian outlook. So because of these two reasons, one, it is 
commitment for its commitment for the Palestinian cause. Two, it makes sense for Iran to support uh, uh, an enemy of the state of Israel because the state of Israel is your number one geopolitical rival in West Asia. So because of these two reasons, Iran continues to support Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And with regard to the weapons, I think Hamas, Hamas has been running Gaza since 2007. And Hamas has, Hamas makes rockets inside Gaza. And apparently Iranians have helped them with low-tech engineering. And what Hamas did on October 7th uh, was to overwhelm the Iron Dome military defense system, the missile defense systems. Because Iron Dome works, it, it also has a bandwidth, it has a capacity. But by launching 5,000 rockets, you know, within hours, basically Hamas had overwhelmed the Iron Dome. So that many rockets hit Israeli places. And it continues to hit even yesterday uh, in one of the border regions. I think two Israelis were killed in rocket attacks. So what they do when they fire the rockets, they fire hundreds of them or they fire thousands of them. And Hamas is estimated to have tens of thousands of rockets which they had piled up over the last uh, uh, you know, uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, so yeah, this is how I think Hamas is working. And they also have their own tunnel systems. And some reports say that they had built tunnels into the Egyptian territory and smuggle in rockets or uh, weapon-grade stuff so that they can assemble rockets or other weapons here uh, inside the Gaza territory. So this is how it, I mean, we have only some idea. We don't have exact, we don't have clarity on how Hamas is acquiring weapons. But all these point to suggest that Hamas is assembling weapons inside Gaza territory. They are getting support from Iran. They have this extensive tunnel systems, which they use to smuggle in weapons through tunnels, also through the Mediterranean Sea. Right. Now, coming to the fallout of this entire uh, development, how would you describe the West's response to this attack uh, and their uh, reactions to, uh, to the whole thing, which I think, broadly speaking, has followed the script of Israel's right uh, to defend itself, quote unquote. I mean, uh, there was some kind of a rift, we know, between Biden administration and Netanyahu until recently. And now I think uh, this seems to have changed uh, all of that or has it? Uh, so this rift between the United States and Israel, which we always read in New York Times and Washington Post, I don't believe in this rift because I think the uh, the the military industrial complex and the Israeli deep state are, they are having very close relationship. So when Obama was there, apparently Obama and Netanyahu were not in talking terms. And Netanyahu had gone to Congress to attack the Obama administration uh, over its Iran nuclear deal, right? But still, Obama was the only president who vetoed all resolutions on, uh, on Israel except one. All resolutions that were critical of Israel were vetoed by, vetoed by the Obama administration throughout his eight years of term, except one. And that one thing about Israeli settlements in West Bank, Obama let it go through only when he was the lame, lame dick president after the election took place and Trump was elected. So uh, even George W. Bush had allowed some resolutions to go through in the UN Security Council that were critical of Israel. Uh, so I think fundamentally, irrespective of the chemistry between the presidents, the United States would always stand solidly behind Israel, irrespective of what Israel is doing. That's what we see now. Biden 
President Biden yesterday called what Hamas did unadulterated evil, uh, which is true, basically. You know, the details coming out of uh, uh, southern Israel are abhorrent. But at the same time, laying siege to an enclave of 2.5 million people, cutting off food, electricity, water, and excessively carrying out uh, bombing of that region. There were even reports of uh, you know, white phosphorus being used in Gaza. Uh, not a word of criticism about these, uh, you know, collective punishment, holding the whole uh, population of Gaza accountable for what Hamas did. Uh, you don't see any kind of criticism, right? And you also see the contrast between Ukraine and uh, Gaza, because in the case of Ukraine, Russia is the occupier, and Ukraine is fighting the Russian occupying force. The whole collective West is with Ukraine supporting weapons, money, and the United States itself has supplied some 400, uh, so some $40 billion worth of military aid, only military aid to Ukraine. And Biden administration keeps saying that international laws cannot be violated by uh, Putin. Uh, but when it comes to Israel, here Israel is the occupier, which has been occupying Palestinian territories for the last 75 years. But Israel's right to defend is the motto of the collective West. Uh, so you see the contrast, basically, when it comes to the West's response. Uh, on the other side, the Palestinian issue, the pa I mean, the Israel, Israel's excessive bombing of the Palestinian territories uh, is not even being mentioned. And Israel doesn't face any meaningful international pressure uh, for its continuing occupation of the Palestinian territories. And that is the sad state of affairs here. Right. I mean, I was just curious, you know, we, I mean, we, uh, the, the double standards, let us say, of the West uh, with regard to Israel and, and, and other countries uh, is sort of fairly well uh, documented, well known, uh, well discussed. But if we set the West aside, I mean, apart from the, the Islamic world, so to speak, have anybody else, have, have the other countries which are not part of the global north, so to speak, and which are not part of the Islamic nations, have they condemned uh, both sides instead of just one side? So the Kremlin issued a statement saying that the only solution to the crisis is a uh, solution of the Palestinian problem. And I think Hamas, uh, they haven't, the Russians haven't condemned either side. Uh, they haven't condemned the Hamas attack also. And the Russian statement was that uh, if you need peace, you need to resolve the Palestinian problem. China, on the other side, has called for restraint on both sides. And India has, uh, you know, condemned the terror attack and offered its support for Israel. So this is how I think more or less the major powers responded. I think the Russians are the only ones who said that the Palestine issue, outside the Islamic world, uh, resolving the Palestine issue is the source for a solution uh, to this crisis. Sorry to interrupt, Stanley, but I was just wondering, isn't it very interesting that on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, India has maintained a very studied neutrality, right? Never condemning yeah. uh, either side, uh, whatever actions they may or may not take. But on in this particular conflict, India has firmly uh, stood on the side of Israel. We are not neutral here. Yeah. I think that is, uh, in the Russian side, India's interests were on the line because... India cannot antagonize the Russians. Your defense ties, everything, were closely aligned with the Russians. So India took a neutral position, which India has always taken with regard to Russia. Here, when it comes to Palestine, India doesn't face that kind of pressure because Palestine is 
uh, a non-issue if you look at India's foreign policy objectives, whereas you have very strong ties with the Israelis. Earlier, India had taken a principal position with regard to the Palestinian problem, but now India sees that even the Arab world has more or less moved away from its former commitment to Palestine. So India, for, for India, the Arab ties with the Arab world is important, but, the, but for the Arab world, the Palestine issue is no longer uh, the issue. So uh, irrespective, I mean, whatever position you take with regard to the Palestinians, are not going to have any foreign policy, immediate foreign policy impact for India. On, one, that is one, one side. On the other side, you, you've seen that uh, under the current Indian government, India has sought very close ties with uh, the Israelis because India's traditional position was um, heavily in favor of the Palestinians. But from the 1990s, India's position was that India supports the creation of an independent Palestinian, sovereign Palestinian state based on the 1967 border with East Jerusalem as its capital. This was the position of Narasimha Rao, the United Front governments, the Vajpayee government, and the Manmohan Singh government. But for the current government, the position is that India supports the creation of an independent sovereign Palestine state. There is no reference to the borders. There is no reference to the capital. So there was a paradigm shift in India's position towards Palestine. So what you see now in the Prime Minister Narendra Modi's statements is a continuation of that position. Right. And how have the other regional powers like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Syria, how have they reacted? Uh, because they have been a part of this entire uh, matrix in terms of you know uh, dictating the Arab world's uh, responses and narratives with regard to Palestine. Will there be realignment yeah, uh... further now? Um, so Saudi Arabia has called for restraint and Iran has offered support to Hamas. UAE, interestingly or unsurprisingly, uh, at, at criticized Hamas taking uh, Israeli citizens as hostages. And uh, others, Turkey, etc., they also call for restraint. They're not attacking, overtly attacking Hamas. They actually, they ask for re restraint, caution, etc., etc. And, uh, but... You know, one of the casualties of this incident was that Saudi Arabia may not be in a position to have uh, a normalization agreement with Israel in the immediate future. Not as long as Israel's attack continues in Hamas, right? Uh, earlier, Mohammed bin Salman had said that they are in a very advanced stage and they were making progress on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think that has changed with Hamas's attack. Uh, do you think, as some reports, analysts are suggesting that this was, in fact, uh, a, a, an obvious aim for Hamas to, to sort of derail this process of normalization? Or is could it a be, byproduct? Could be, yeah, could be. Hamas, Hamas, I think Hamas's main objective was, I think, to break the status quo. Hamas must be preparing for this attack for quite some time. But of course, if the Saudi-Israel deal goes through, Hamas would be in a much uh, bigger uh, disadvantages position because Saudi Arabia is the custodian of Mecca Medina mosques, a custodian of Islam's holiest sites, and arguably the most influential Arab country. And if that Arab country reaches a normalization agreement with Israel uh, without the Palestinians getting anything, because when the UAE signed the agreement, the Palestinians got nothing. When the Egyptians did it in 1978, the Palestinians at least got a framework agreement. When the Jordanians did it in 1994, it came after the Oslo Agreement of 1993. 
But when the Emirates did it, the Palestinians got nothing. And Israel was definitely not in a position to offer more concessions to the Palestinians for a Saudi deal. The Saudis, I think, were more concerned about what they would get from the Americans rather than what the Palestinians would get from the Israelis. Uh, but that has been changed now because when the Israelis continue to attack Gaza, holding the Palestinian population responsible for what Hamas did, uh, when the Arab street sympathies are overwhelmingly aligning, aligned with the Palestinians, I think it would be extremely difficult uh, for the Saudis to reach a, a, a reconciliation agreement with the Israelis. Right. I was just, just for the benefit of our uh, listeners, like what kind of a group is it? I mean, we know it is Islamist and militant and so on, but where does where exactly uh, does it fall on the spectrum when it comes to, you know, things like treatment of women uh, hostages? Is it like the ISIS or Taliban or does it have a different, uh, more moderate, so to speak, kind of an ethical code or reputation? Can you talk a little bit about this organization? It is a political Islamist organization or Islamist militant organization. But as we know, Islamism uh, is not a monolithic uh, thing. It is a broad spectrum. So comparing it with ISIS or Al-Qaeda, uh, I think it is not justified because Al-Qaeda and ISIS were transnational Islamist uh, jihadist organizations uh, that were operating for, you know, setting up an Islamic Emirate. Universal Islamic Emirate, Pan-Islamic Emirate. Uh, Hamas is a nationalist movement. We have to understand that. It has its roots going to the Muslim Brotherhood, but still it is operating as a nationalist movement, Palestinian nationalist movement, which have which has used terror as a tactic. They had used the suicide bombing in the 1990s and early 2000s. There is no doubt about it. But it is not a transnational pan-Islamist jihadist organization. First of all. Secondly, Taliban is also a nationalist movement, right? Taliban had hosted Al-Qaeda, but primarily an Afghan nationalist movement. But Taliban is more of a tribal, uh, let's say, uh, organization with, uh, uh, with, with uh, uh, the Wahhabi uh, elements, very strident interpretation of Islam. Hamas on the other side has its links to uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Hamas had contested elections, right? And they accepted Muslim Brotherhood ha accepts modern political systems. But for them, Islam is the guiding principle. So Hamas is actually, uh, Hamas shares its worldview with the Muslim Brotherhood. So it is nationalist, it is political Islamist, but at the same time, its worldview, it may not be very progressive, but it, is, it cannot be compared with other Islamist organizations in the larger Islamist spectrum. And if you look at Palestine, you know, there is a con context for Hamas to emerge. Hamas as an organization was formed in 1987, uh, you know, uh, during the first Intifada. And uh, Hamas, prior to that, Hamas's main objective was to purify the Islamic order, what they called the upbringing of a new Islamist generation. And uh, um, Sheikh Ahmad Yasin was the founder of Hamas. Sheikh, Sheikh Ahmad Yasin initially formed this organization called uh, Islamic Center. And Islamic Center, their main objective was what they called to purify the Palestinian populace, not to enter politics. So when the Palestinian Liberation Organization formed in the 1960s, 
uh, were involved in guerrilla warfare against the Israelis, Hamas's focus was on internal Islamic purification. And Hamas was raising funds, building mosques, building institutions, including the Islamic University of Gaza. And uh, uh, Hamas is not Hamas, the Islamic Center's focus. And Islamic Center was recognized by the Israelis uh, as a charity which allowed the Islamic Center to raise funds. You know, uh, so interestingly, the Israelis at that time saw Palestine secular nationalism as the main threat. So they wanted some kind of a counterforce uh, to Yasser Arafat. So they indirectly backed the Islamic Center or the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, influenced the Islamic movement uh, within the Palestinian territories. This is recorded history. Uh, you know, In other words, you're basically, uh, so, uh, you're basically saying that Israel has uh, enabled and empowered the birth and uh, expansion of what would become Hamas. That's right. Because Islamic Center is the predecessor of Hamas. And Islamic Center was recognized by the state of Israel as a charity. And that allowed the Islamic Center to raise uh, funds. And what would transform Islamic Center was the 1979 Islamic Revolution. So after the Islamic successful Islamic Revolution of Iran, Islamist groups generally would become more ambitious and politically more involved. And towards the late 1980s, you would see after the first Intifada broke out, Hamas leader Sheikh Ahmad Yassin would ask uh, its members to rise against the Israeli occupiers. It's then Hamas would start using violence against the Israelis only in the late 1980s. So before that, Islamic Center has never been involved in politics. Their focus was on purifying society. Uh, but then in the 1990s, Hamas would start using violence and then Israel would start treating Hamas as a rival. Sheikh Ahmad Yassin would be arrested and in early 2000s, he would be killed. His follower, Rantisi, uh, 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 Sheikh Rantisi would also be killed by the Israelis. So by that time, by the 1990s, because you saw in 1993, the Palestinian secular nationalist movement would agree to recognize the state of Israel in return for the Oslo Agreement. So Hamas is the organization that attacked Oslo because Oslo at that time was a promising development because it promised the two-state solution. But for Hamas, Palestine is Palestine. Israel was created within Palestine. And Oslo, the two-state solution of Oslo, would actually recognize the state of Israel, which means the Palestinians are already accepting a compromise because a vast majority of historical Palestine is now Israel. So the Palestinians have agreed to have a Palestinian state based on the West Bank and Gaza. So Hamas said Oslo is not sustainable. And interestingly, Hamas was proved right because Oslo crumbled, right? The two-state solution that was promised in 1993 has still not been materialized, not just that it wasn't materialized. Since then, Israeli checkpoints have mushroomed on the occupied territories of West Bank. And Israel's security barrier uh, has cut deep into the 1967 border. So, I mean, if you do a proper analysis, Hamas's position on Oslo has been proved right. And that allowed Hamas to become more popular. Because the Palestinians who backed the Oslo process, who backed the PLO, who backed the Fatah, uh, hoping that they would get a sovereign independent state, were disappointed because their situation has only become worsened over the last 30 years, not improved. 
So they started looking at Hamas as a much more credible opponent to the Israeli occupation. That's what led to Hamas's political victory in 2006. Right. So Stanley, earlier on, you made a fundamental distinction uh, between uh, Hamas and other uh, Islamist, political Islamist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and so on, uh, on, the, on the grounds that uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc. were transnational Islamist, uh, Islamist organizations, whereas Hamas is a nationalist organization. But I was just curious, don't, does that mean that Hamas fighters, like we know that Taliban is basically about Afghanistan and geographically uh, 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 bound by that. But you do have Taliban fighters fighting elsewhere. So do you do, don't you have Hamas fighters who, of course, main uh, uh, main focus is uh, Palestine uh, freedom? Uh, don't they also go as mercenaries and fight uh, transnational battles in other places? They don't. Not to my knowledge. No, they don't. They are strictly limited to Gaza and West Bank. They don't go fight elsewhere. That's what I am saying. They are not. So, so when they are when they are uh, when they are designated as terrorists, so that means that they do this terrorist activity uh, in Israel only. Yes, that's right. So they were designated as terrorists because they had killed civilians in the past, and October seven incident shows that they are still killing civilians. So you are using terror against non-combatants. So you are called terrorists. So this. See, from the Israeli point of view, yes, they are terrorists, but the United States and the European Union also has also bought this point of view. But Hamas's point of view is that we are fighting for freedom of the Palestinian territories. So we use whatever means available to us is what Hamas is saying. But, you know, the distinction, the, the designation of uh, uh, Hamas being a terrorist organization is coming from this very fact that Hamas had targeted Israeli civilians in the past. It is still targeting Israeli civilians, uh, Israeli non-combatants uh, using terror so that they are called a terrorist organization. But their operations are within the limits of historic Palestine. It is in Gaza, West Bank and Israel proper, not beyond these borders. Okay. So I was just also a related uh, question on this. Uh, I mean, it is fairly uh, well known that the Palestinian cause enjoys a lot of support among progressives uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, now, Hamas, uh, with the kind of uh, attack it has done, uh, taken a lot of uh, civilian lives as well. Do you think it is going to erode uh, the support for uh, Palestinian freedom in many different countries? Or will it also enjoy, uh, continue to enjoy the kind of uh, support that the Palestinian cause and, and does? among uh, progressive-minded people in different parts of the world? See, the support for the Palestinian cause, uh, I don't know, but I think it would remain so because what is the solution to this crisis? You just, uh, if you look at it objectively, what is the solution to this problem? The solution is a creation of the Palestinian state. Solution is to end the occupation of the Palestinian territories. The Israelis would not like to talk about it. For them, it is a security problem. It's terrorism. It's only terrorism. But the larger problem is what we called in our editorial, the original sin of West Asia is the continuing occupation of the Palestinian territories, which is the longest occupation of any people in the modern history. It's been going on for the last 78 years, 75 years. So, I mean, if you are a rational actor from in, in the global scale, 
If you want to find a solution, you need to support the Palestinian cause. You attack Hamas. I understand that because Hamas has committed terrible things. But your support for the Palestinian cause or your support for finding a solution to the Palestinian question, I think is the key. And this is not only among the progressive sections or countries. The United States should also realize that realize this at some point of time because the united states wants a quieter west asia what they call the middle east if you want a quieter west asia you need to address the fundamental contradictions of west asia because you think that you can ignore this bring arab countries and the israelis together and and make west asia a peaceful place but yeah abraham accords might signal that the palestinian problem is no longer an israel arab problem but it doesn't mean that the Palestine problem would remain uh, 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 an Israel-Palestine problem, right? That's what Hamas showed. No matter uh, uh, the realignments that are taking place in the region, the Saudi-UAE uh, reconciliation, Saudi-Bahrain reconciliation, the Saudi-Iranian reconciliation, the Saudi-Turkey uh, reconciliation, the reaccommodation of Syria into the Arab fold, the UAE-Turkey reconciliation, the UAE-Saudi and Qatari reconciliation. Too many things were happening in the region when everybody ignored the Palestine issue and Hamas just told the world that, no, this remains an important issue. Unless you address this issue, West Asia is going to remain unstable. I think, uh, so, uh, yeah, from, from an objective point of view, I think the push for the push for a just a solution to the Palestinian issue uh, is going to be very, very important. Right. One final uh, question, uh, Stanley. Now, uh, you mean we referred briefly to the 1973 uh, Yom Kippur War, which, after which, you know, the Labour Party's dominance in Israeli politics sort of came to an end. So what does this war mean for Netanyahu? I mean, because it's a big intelligence and military failures. More than 700, 800 Israeli civilians have died. Is it going to spell the end of his political career as well? Or is it going to strengthen his position because you have a war now? Yeah, I think it has immediately weakened his position because this is a huge failure for Netanyahu, someone who has built his career on security. And uh, the biggest security crisis Israel is facing is unfolding under his watch. And there will be questions. And if you look at Israel's history, there would be questions. Once the dust settles, there would be serious questions. As you pointed out, Labour Party was finished after Yom Kippur. I mean, it, they, they still continue to hang on to power, but their dominance, their hegemony was shattered after Yom Kippur. And uh, Ehud Olmert, he failed to prevent the Hezbollah infiltration, and then his attack on Lebanon uh, also turned out to be disastrous because after 30 years of attack in 2006, Hezbollah continued to resist to the Israelis and continued to send rockets into Israel. And forcing the Israelis to sign uh, a ceasefire agreement and pull back from southern Lebanon in 2006, Ehud Olmert's political career was finished. So Netanyahu here again is facing a serious crisis. Now he is at war and he is going to unleash fire and fury on the Gazans. Uh, but Netanyahu is also facing, as I pointed out earlier, serious uh, questions about how this operation is going to take effect. Because uh, is he planning to destroy Hamas? Is that an achievable target or is he going to attack Gaza and come back? In that case, what is the guarantee that Hamas would not do this again? Uh, so, and also why this happened, why the intelligence failure, why Israel, uh, you know, failed to prevent this attack happening with all your intelligence and military might. So there would be a lot of questions 
uh, and Netanyahu will have to answer this. And how it is going to affect his political career, I think we have to wait and see. Right. But no easy uh, sort of solutions or ways forward, even for uh, Israel here, whether they go and occupy Gaza, sort of get into a war of attrition, or they go and try to destroy Hamas and come back, which is not going to be an easy task either. And overall, it is fairly clear uh, from what you've said, Stanley, that Hamas has set out to break this kind of status quo and uh, maybe they have paid a too, too steep a price for it and how these things are going to play out in the days to come. We'll have to wait and see. Thank you so much, Stanley, for sharing your insightful observations and comment on this uh, development story. Hopefully, we'll come back and talk more about it sometime. Please. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Sambat. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.